Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "The Secret Life of Walter Mitty," by James Thurber. This was first published in the New Yorker, March eighteenth, nineteen thirty-nine. Uh, it was turned into two movies. One was. Uh, 1947, starring Danny Kaye, and the other was 2013, starring, uh, mm, uh, Ben Stiller? I, yeah, Ben Stiller. Um, I've seen neither, but, um, I did see enough of the trailers to see that they, they changed a few things. <laughs> um, but, uh, they both keep the central core which is there's this guy with a really good imagination or maybe a really bad imagination. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know that much about James Thurber as a person, um, but I kind of think that he is Walter Mitty. Um, <laughs> is, is that confirmable at all in your view? I, I, not from what I know of him. He seemed to have been a, a, a good friend, a well-humored, um, imaginative um, person who bore up in life well, um, a spent most of his career as both a writer and cartoonist for the New Yorker, um, was well liked by his colleagues. And the fact that he was a successful cartoonist is really quite amazing since he had very, very bad eyesight. He wound up doing his famous mm. line drawings because he couldn't do more than line drawings. He couldn't see well enough to do more than that. Um, and yet one would never know that from uh, the aplomb and uh, the, the wry um, acceptance that his stories and cartoons sort of show. You know, like, oh, yes, mm -hmm. that's what these people are like. <laughs> um, yeah, so, that's, that's a good word for him, wry, W-R-Y. Yes. Um, it, it's a... It's a it's a way to go in the face of of the horror of reality. <laughs> it is. Um, you know, the disabilities we're born with, the limitations we're born with, and and the knowledge that uh, we are not meant to voyage far. Um, I want to uh, uh, just mention, uh, I didn't know that he had worked for The New Yorker uh, other than, you know, just uh, writing these stories for it. Uh, we did The Princess in the Tin Box, which is, mm -hmm. I think, a terrific little story. Um, but uh, I did note that the Walter Mitty character in uh, both movies works for a magazine. Um, in the first one, he works for a pulp magazine or a pulp magazine house. Right. So they produce adventure magazines and uh, exotic uh, location magazines and, uh, you know, detective murder mystery jungle stories, that sort of thing. And in the, the Ben Stiller version, uh, he works for Life magazine, uh, which is pretty clever given the title of The Star of the Secret <laughs> Life of Walter Mitty. Um, and both are comedies, which is good. Um, I also note that in th this story, uh, there's basically just the two characters. There's uh, Walter Mitty and Walter Mitty's wife. Um but in the Danny Kay version, the Walter Minnie wife character is his mother, which I think is very significant. 
and in the uh, the Ben Stiller version, he's unmarried. Um, and I think that that's very movie of them to do those things, but also very insightful um, to the story itself. So I, I'm looking forward to watching both of them, the movies. Um, but uh, the story's short enough. If you would read it for us, maybe we can put a movie in our own heads just listening to you. What? My pleasure. We're going through, the commander's voice was like thin ice breaking. He wore his full-dress uniform with a heavily braided white cap pulled down rakishly over one cold gray eye. We can't make it, sir. It's spoiling for a hurricane, if you ask me. I'm not asking you, Lieutenant Berg, said the commander. Throw on the power lights. River up to 8,500. We're going through. The pounding of the cylinders increased. Ta-pakata, pakata, 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 pakata. The commander stared at the ice forming on the pilot window. He walked over and twisted a row of complicated dials. Switch on number eight auxiliary, he shouted. Switch on number eight auxiliary, repeated Lieutenant Berg. Full strength in number three turret, shouted the commander. Full strength in number three turret. The crew bending to their various tasks in the huge, hurtling, eight-engined Navy hydroplane looked at each other and grinned. The old man will get us through, they said to one another. The old man ain't afraid of hell. Not so fast. You're driving too fast, said Mrs. Mitty. What are you driving so fast? Hmm? said Walter Mitty. He looked at his wife in the seat beside him with shocked astonishment. She seemed grossly unfamiliar, like a strange woman who had yelled at him in a crowd. You were up to 55, she said. You know I don't like to go more than 40. You were up to 55. Walter Mitty drove on toward Waterbury in silence. The roaring of the SN-202 through the worst storm in 20 years of Navy flying faded in the remote, intimate airways of his mind. You're tensed up again, said Mrs. Mitty. It's one of your days. I wish you'd let Dr. Renshaw look you over. Walter Mitty stopped the car in front of the building where his wife went to have her hair done. Remember to get those overshoes while I'm having my hair done, she said. I don't need overshoes, said Mitty. She put her mirror back in her bag. We've been all through that, she said, getting out of the car. You're not a young man any longer. He raced the engine a little. Why don't you wear your gloves? Have you lost your gloves? Walter reached in a pocket and brought out the gloves. He put them on. But after she had turned and gone into the building and he had driven on to a red light, he took them off again. Pick it up, brother, snapped a cop as the light changed and Mitty hastily put on his gloves and lurched ahead. He drove around the streets aimlessly for a time and then he drove past the hospital on his way to the parking lot. It's the millionaire banker Willington McMillan, said the pretty nurse. Yes, said Walter Mitty, removing his gloves slowly. Who has the case? Dr. Renshaw and Dr. Benbow. But there are two specialists here, Dr. Remington from New York and Dr. Pritchard Mitford from London. He flew over. A door opened down a long, cool corridor and Dr. Renshaw came out. He looked distraught and haggard. Hello, Mitty, he said. We're having the devil's own time with Macmillan, the millionaire banker and close personal friend of Roosevelt. Ulstriosis of the ductal tract. Tertiary. Wish you'd take a look at him. Glad to, said Mitty. In the operating room, there were whispered introductions. Dr. Remington, Dr. Mitty, Dr. Pritchard Mitford, Dr. Mitty. 
I've read your book on streptothrichosis, said Pritchard Mitford, shaking hands. A brilliant performance, sir. Thank you, said Walter Mitty. Didn't know you were in the States, Mitty, grumbled Remington. Coles to Newcastle, bringing Mitford up, me up here for a tertiary. You are very kind, said Mitty. A huge, complicated machine connected to the operating table with many tubes and wires began at this moment to go, pocket up, pocket up, pocket up. The new anesthetizer is giving way, shouted an intern. There is no one in the East who knows how to fix it. Quiet man, said Mitty in a low, cool voice. He sprang to the machine, which was now going pocket-a-pocket-a-queep, pocket-a-queep. He began fingering delicately a row of glistening dials. Give me a fountain pen, he snapped. Someone handed him a fountain pen. He pulled the faulty piston out of the machine and inserted the pen in its place. That will hold for 10 minutes, he said. Get on with the operation. A nurse hurried over and whispered to Renshaw, and Mitty saw the man turn pale. Coriopsis has set in, said Renshaw nervously. If you would take over, Mitty. Mitty looked at him and at the craven figure of Benbow who drank and at grave, uncertain faces of the two great specialists. If you wish, he said. They slipped a white gown on him. He adjusted a mask and drew on thin gloves. Nurses handed him shining. Back it up, Mac. Look out for that Buick. Walter Mitty jammed on the brakes. Wrong lane, Mac said the parking lot attendant, looking at Mitty closely. Gee, yeah, muttered Mitty. He began cautiously to back out of the lane marked exit only. Leave her sit there, said the attendant. I'll put her away. Mitty got out of the car. Hey, better leave the key. Oh, said Mitty, handing the man the ignition key. The attendant vaulted into the car, backed it up with insolent skill and put it where it belonged. They're so damn cocky, thought Walter Mitty, walking along Main Street. They think they know everything. Once he had tried to take his chains off outside New Milford and he had got them wound around the axles, a man had had to come out in a wrecking car and unwind them. A young, grinning garage man. Since then, Mrs. Mitty always made him drive to a garage to have the chains taken off. The next time, he thought, I'll wear my right arm in a sling. They won't grin at me. Then I'll have my right arm in a sling, and they'll see I couldn't possibly take the chains off myself. He kicked at the slush on the sidewalk. Overshoes, he said to himself. And he began looking for a shoe store. When he came out into the street again with the overshoes and a box under his arm, Walter Mitty began to wonder what the other thing was his wife had told him to get. She had told him twice before they set out from their house from Waterbury. In a way, he had heard these weekly trips to town. He was always getting something wrong. Kleenex, he thought. Squib, razor blades, no, toothpaste, toothbrush, high bicarbonate, carborundum, initiative, and referendum? He gave up, but she would remember it. Where's the what's-its-name, she would ask. Don't tell me you forgot the what's-its-name. A newsboy went by shouting something about the Waterbury trial. Perhaps this will refresh your memory, the district attorney thrust a heavy automatic at the quiet figure on the witness stand. Have you ever seen this before? Walter Mitty took the gun and examined it expertly. This is my Webley Vickers 5080, he said calmly. An excited buzz ran through the courtroom. The judge rapped for order. 
You are a crack shot with any sort of firearms, I believe, said the district attorney, insinuatingly. Objection, shouted Mitty's attorney. We have shown that the defendant could not have fired the shot. We have shown that he wore his right arm in a sling on the night of the 14th of July. Walter Mitty raised his hand briefly, and the bickering attorneys were stilled. With any known make of gun, he said evenly. I could have killed Gregory Fitzhurst at 300 feet with my left hand. Pandemonium broke loose in the courtroom. A woman's scream rose above the bedlam, and suddenly a lovely dark-haired girl was in Walter Mitty's arms. The district attorney struck at her savagely. Without rising from his chair, Mitty let the man have it on the point of the chin. You miserable cur. Puppy biscuit, said Walter Mitty. He stopped walking in the buildings to have Waterbury rose up out of the misty afternoon and surrounded him again. A woman who was passing laughed. He said, puppy biscuit, she said to her companion. That man said puppy biscuit to himself. Walter Mitty hurried on. He went into an A&P, not the first one. He came to it, but a smaller one farther up the street. I want some biscuit for small young dogs, he said to the clerk. Any special brand, sir? The greatest pistol shot in the world thought a moment it says puppies bark for it on the box said walter mitty his wife would be through with the hairdressers in 15 minutes mitty saw in looking at his watch unless they had trouble drying it which sometimes they had trouble drying it she didn't like to get to the hotel first she would want him to be there waiting for her as usual he found a big leather chair in the lobby facing a window and he put the overshoes and the puppy biscuit on the floor beside it. He picked up an old copy of Liberty and sank down into the chair. Can Germany conquer the world through the air? Ultimately looked at the pictures of the bombing planes and of ruined streets. The cannonading has got the wind up in young Raleigh, sir, said the sergeant. Captain Mitty looked up at him through tussled hair. Get him to bed, he said wearily. With the others, I'll fly alone. But you can't, sir, said the sergeant anxiously. It takes two men to handle that bomber, and this, ar- and the archers are pounding hell out of the air. Van Richtman's circus is between here and Saulier. Somebody's got to get that ammunition dump, said Mitty. I'm going over. Spot of brandy. He poured a drink for the sergeant and one for himself. War thundered and whined around the dugout and battered at the door. There was a rending of wood and splinters flew through the room. A bit of an air thing, said Captain Mitty carelessly. The box barrage is closing in, said the sergeant. We only live once, sergeant, said Mitty, with his faint, fleeting smile. Or do we? He poured another brandy and tossed it off. I never see a man could hold his brandy like you, sir, said the sergeant. Begging your pardon, sir? Captain Mitty stood up and strapped on his huge Webley Vickers automatic. It's 40 kilometers through hell, sir, said the sergeant. Mitty finished one last brandy. After all, he said softly, what isn't? The pounding of the cannon increased. There was the rat-a-tatting of machine guns, and from somewhere came the menacing pakata 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 of the new flamethrowers. Walter Mitty walked to the door of the dugout, humming "Auprès de ma blonde." He turned and waved to the sergeant. "Cheerio," he said. Something struck his shoulder. "I've been looking all over this hotel for you," said Mrs. Mitty. "Why do you hide in a, this old chair?" How did you expect me to find you? 
Things close in, said Walter Mitty vaguely. What? Mrs. Mitty said. Did you get the what's-its-name? The Puckby Biscuit? What's in that box? Overshoes, said Mitty. Couldn't you have put them on in the store? I was thinking, said Walter Mitty. Does it ever occur to you that I am sometimes thinking? She looked at him. I'm going to take your temperature when I get you home, she said. They went out through the revolving doors that made a faintly derisive whistling sound when you pushed them. It was two blocks to the parking lot. At the drugstore on the corner, she said, wait here for me. I forgot something. I won't be a minute. She was more than a minute. Walter Mitty lighted a cigarette. It began to rain, rain with sleet in it. He stood up against the wall of the drugstore, smoking. He put his shoulders back and his heels together. To hell with the handkerchief, said Walter Mitty scornfully. He took one last drag on his cigarette and snapped it away. Then, with that faint, fleeting smile playing about his lips, he faced the firing squad, erect and motionless, proud and disdainful. Walter Mitty, the undefeated, inscrutable to the last. That's a very good story, Eric. It really is. It really is. How but many I, I do ways wanna... can we count its goodness is my question. <laughs> well, I do there want to are start with one thing, though, Jesse. So many. T- turn, then I'll turn it over to you. I think that mm-hmm. the core of the story might be his imagination. That's what the Hollywood people thought. But I think there's another yeah. way to look at it. It's not random that we've got the wife no. here and the mother with Danny Kay. No, absolutely not. Uh, it's It's... Uh, for a movie, it makes way more sense to to do that. Um, I, in the story, I think it makes more consistent sense. But that that's because the two mediums are quite different, right? This is this is, and I, I'm saying it's 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 basically a perfect story. <laughs> Every part of it does work to get us where it's going and give us what it's doing, and it even ends. With the last word being last. Indeed. It's just amazing. But I think it's not just the medium. I think it's the Hollywood movie that's the the issue here. This story ends with Mitty feeling undefeated only in his own mind. And we see that he is, in fact, quite defeated. Um, (laughs) But in the Danny Kaye movie, which I did take the time to to rewatch because I remembered watching it on TV as a kid um, mm-hmm. in the Danny Kay movie his mother indeed is the one who henpecks him but right. he has a fiance and he manages to get married at the end we uh, get in other words a happy kind of. Hollywood ending where he manages to get a spine and a good life for himself where he has an appropriate relationship with a woman instead of being mm. under a woman's thumb. So, right. I, you know, the story could have been written that way, too. Um, I think it's Hollywood, not just the fact that it's film. but Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you could do a short film of this that would absolutely uh, be faithful to the story in at least some senses. But um, I I love the, <laughs> that she's she's got him wearing overshoes and gloves and she's always well, she thinks he's sick right? <laughs> she's treating him like a child rather than uh, an adult, her husband 
and um, he is he is acting like a child. He's he's always playing. He's playing pilot. He's playing ship captain. He's playing surgeon. He's playing crack shot. Right. Um, so it, it plays up in both directions. She plays up the henpecking uh, wife that's more like a mother, and he plays <laughs> like a truant child uh, who is uh, always dreaming instead of focusing on the real important things like uh, shopping lists and stuff <laughs> like that. It's, uh, it's wonderful. It is. It's, and, and, and so important to the wonderfulness is how everything – leads to the next thing it's it's in the style of stream of consciousness but in a dream logic sort of way too so uh, once you start looking at the numbers like the number eight coming up um throw on the power of eights right uh the the power lights (laughs) um lights and eights um they i I get the sense that they drive an eight-cylinder car (laughs) yeah you know the dial of his watch and the dial of the car gauges um, are reflected in the the dials on the anesthetizer. Every you know the the scene so obviously where he um, he's in the courtroom with a, uh, his arm in a sling comes from him fantasizing about how he'll deal with the embarrassment of having to go to the uh, to the mechanic to have them take off his his. Uh, car spikes right sure everything is connected and the psychology in in that scene when Mitty punches the the district attorney in the uh in the chin and says you miserable cur it's the word that reminds him that it's puppy biscuits right and then we see that uh wonderful scene of the the girl walking by with her boyfriend saying he just that man just said puppy biscuit (laughs) he's talking to himself right um, we we are not seeing the world through the eyes of only Walter Mitty. We're seeing the world uh, through the eyes of those observing Walter Mitty too, and it makes a an amazing view of this of this man, who I think his psychology is it's written all over the page. Right, he every position he puts himself in is that of an expert, a leader, a highly competent person. Um, and that's the opposite of what he seems to be. At every turn, his wife is scolding him. The policemen are complaining about him driving badly. The parking attendant, right? No matter where he goes, he is humiliated. Um, it's beautiful. It is beautiful, but I must say, I, over the course of the years, I've probably read this at least half a dozen times. Uh, maybe it's my age. I don't know, Jesse, but um, it's beautiful for me because the language is handled so well, although it doesn't seem mm-hmm. to be skillful until we begin to analyze it, as, as you've just invited us to do. And it's beautiful because it's so incisive, but the the incisive psychology that is displayed here on reflection is very sad. It's very sad. You know, you say that he makes himself heroic, but in fact, he is heroic in being able to drink a lot. He is heroic in being able to sneer at the firing Mm -hmm. squad. But as you move from one thing to the other, from one episode of imagination to the next, he becomes less and less. He's going to be able to get it 
to, to remove himself from humiliation at the garage by appearing with his arm in a sling. He needs to disable himself. After, his, after he gets, his wife gets out of the car and he takes off his gloves, as soon as the policeman says to hurry up, he puts them back on. It's, mm-hmm. he, he bows to authority. And the only way he can think of to survive that humiliation is to make less and less of himself so that at the end, at the last, he was undefeated, inscrutable to the last. That's what he wants to believe. But I right. think Thurber is letting us see that, in fact, he is defeated at the last. And that's so, so sad that someone, as you said, a child, someone with wonderful imagination can think of no way out. And in that regard, I think the setting is perhaps important. This is in The New Yorker. It's published in The New Yorker. And it's set in Connecticut. It is, from the standpoint of people reading The New Yorker, a bedroom place. And we've got Waterbury and so on. We've got recognizable um, Connecticut names. This becomes then um, a critique of bourgeois suburban life. Except Walter Mitty doesn't take the train into Manhattan to hold down a real job. He's just around to run errands. And... You know, this this is terrible. They've got the money somehow, and that means he has nothing. He has no real occupation. Um, I think this is a significant social critique, as well as being initially charming, but ultimately a tragic story of someone who doesn't have anything to do to, that warrants his own self-esteem because he's never been asked to do anything significant. He's just running errands for mommy. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any hint as to what he does for a living here. Obviously, he they have enough money to go shopping and get drinks and hang out in hotels and do all the things they need to do in their eight-cylinder car. Um, he, he can afford the overshoes and all that stuff. Um but at the end where, you know, he's about to be shot by firing squad, I get the sense that he just, he's just going to continue doing this for the rest of his life. Like it's not, the wife is going to come out from whatever errand she suddenly put herself on. That's only going to take a minute. She's going to come back and he's going to be dreaming about something else. And that idea of the secret life of Walter Mitty, as opposed to, you know, the sad death of Walter Mitty, He's just going to continue doing this. This story goes on forever until you know I, he's no longer alive. I agree with you but, fully. But I, what I'm suggesting is that the secret life of Walter Mitty is the only is only aspirational because the real life of Walter Mitty is death, and he understands that as Walter Mitty doesn't know it consciously any more than he knew when he said, you miserable cur, that he was really Mm. thinking about the puppy biscuit. His mind is making the connections for him. But the last connection that it makes is, you know, if I can sneer in the face of the world, I'm going to die. And I'll be happy with that. Because frankly, it's better to die heroically than live like Walter Mitty. It's a it's a lot like that story of uh, the Aesop's fable of the fox and the grapes, where the fox 
sees the grapes on the tree branch, but the branch is too high for the fox to reach. And the fox says, oh, those grapes are sour anyways. It's his way of compensating for the fact that, yeah, I can't reach those grapes. Exactly. They look sweet, but I can't reach them. Ah, it's okay. They're sour anyways. Um, (laughs) That's the psychology at play here. It is. And, you know, so much is lost. I mean, his freedom, right? Storms become something that are a challenge for a man in his imagination. They are something that he has to be infantilized for wearing galoshes in <laughs> in his wife's world. And you can see little hints of things like, you know, as you say, the, the significance of eights, you know, the get it, it's, get it up to 8,500, but it's just mm-hmm. a, a V8 engine. His Webley 5080. Exactly. Webley Vickers 50. I, I actually, I, I revel in those little <laughs> wrong references. Obviously, uh, Thurber knows the correct name nomenclature for this stuff, nomenclature for this stuff, but uh, Mitty doesn't, and he doesn't. It doesn't really matter. Well, so uh, when Doctor Benbow shows up, the other doctor is the doctor she mentioned earlier that he needs to go see because there's something wrong with his head. Right, right. <laughs> but but it just tur- takes it all in and converts it into the fantasy world. But one of the some of that's absolutely right. And one of if we look at what he takes in, sometimes it's quite conspicuous. Sometimes not so much. When mm-hmm. Walter Mitty is going off to to go fly and knock out that ammunition dump, mm-hmm. he is humming to himself, "Auprès de ma blonde." Mm-hmm. Right now, that's a a famous song at that time. Mm-hmm. "Auprès de ma blonde, il fait bon, fait bon, fait bon." Auprès de ma blonde, mm-hmm. il fait bon dormir, right? In English, next to my blonde, next to my blonde, it's really good, it's really good <laughs> to sleep, which is a euphemism, right? Mm-hmm. What Walter Mitty is thinking as he goes out to get rid of the ammunition dump is, boy, it would be good to have a really exciting sex life. And <laughs> that's buried in here. And when you say oh, yeah. that, that Mrs. Mitty acts more like a mother than a wife, that's pres- yep. that I think that's that's a big part of it. You know, she'll take his temperature. My guess is the thermometer is going to go in his armpit. <laughs> there's a um, there's a, uh, the scene in the uh, there's so many things that happen in this very short story, the courtroom scene where the. The district attorney pulls out, thrusts a heavy automatic uh, at the quiet figure on the witness stand. The quiet figure is him, right? Right. And then at the end of that, after confessing, obviously, against <laughs> against advice of his attorney, that he couldn't possibly have shot the man because he was, at the time of the event, his right arm was in a sling. I love that. Um, he says, I'm an equally good crack shot with my left hand. And then the uh, a woman scream rose above the bedlam, and suddenly a lovely dark-haired girl, so not a blonde this time, he'll take any girl who's, who's <laughs> in his dreams, was uh, in Walter Mitty's arms. The district attorney struck at her savagely without rising from his chair. This is amazing. He's in the witness stand. Mitty let himself, let the man have it on the point of the chin. You miserable cur. So... He's uh, he's so powerful. He can like reach across the courtroom. 
Um, but uh, he he's uh, able to recycle that Webley Vickers gun from the courtroom scene to strap on the the massive stra- uh, Webley's Vicker uh, when he goes off to bomb the ammunition dump. Right. And throughout throughout the story, from the very beginning to the very end, pocket a pocket a pocket a weave and I'm like. Is this the car engine? Is this the city noise? Or is this like sort of the the constant whirring of his own brain? I think it is, but I think that, and we're supposed to notice it because the same word is repeated. And it it could have been mm-hmm. ratatata. It could have been tatatata. Right. It could have been da 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 da. It could have been a lot of things. But pakata 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 has pocket in it, and pockets yeah, it sure are, does. pockets are where you put things that are invisible to other people, but you know you've got them. You concealed it from them or from yourself. Exactly. I get the sense that he's always putting things in his pockets and forgetting about them. And yet they come out later and it's, oh, yeah, right, which is what this story is all about. In, in fact, just like us, when he thinks about those things, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.